Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you would come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. The word of God for the people of God. It's really hard to have that, those last two lines there and to say them with seriousness because we leave this story with a naked young boy running away uh, from, from Jesus and from the people that are capturing him. This story that we're looking at tonight is really a couple of different vignettes. Really, we have three different main themes centered around the one main story, which is Jesus praying to his Father in Gethsemane. We see Jesus who is engaged in this passionate, intimate, very human moment with his Father. And we have stories on either side that seem to um, 
push us even closer to the cross to allow us to see the depth of Jesus' despair. In this painting by El Greco from the Spanish Renaissance, The Agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the main picture of Jesus here in the middle, but he's flanked on either side by the sleeping disciples and Judas leading a gang of people to arrest Jesus. These verses which we looked at um, give us a very different picture of who Jesus is. This is not the Jesus that we grew up with, and this is not the Jesus that we saw often in Sunday school, and this is a Jesus actually that has caused a lot of people to ask questions. It's fascinating to compare Mark with the other gospel accounts of this story to see how they each deal with this moment. But when we look at this passage, there's really just three things that I want to point out. I'm gonna spend the most time with this first one, but I don't think I'm gonna have a whole lot to say this evening. The first bit is Jesus' agony while he's in the garden. It says he took Peter and James and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Jesus has often taken these three away with him for these moments where they have seen Jesus at the highest of highs. They saw Jesus in the room with the, the daughter of Jairus, who was dead. And Jesus calmly says, little girl, it's time for you to wake up now. We see these disciples seeing his power and his majesty, just seeing Jesus uh, interacting in the lives of these people and doing ridiculous miracles. We also see Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration when, when Jesus is illuminated almost, flanked by Elijah and Moses, and Jesus becomes this different picture of himself. They've seen Jesus at the highest of highs, and now they see Jesus in a very different way where the text says that Jesus begins to be deeply distressed and troubled. One commentator says, imagine the person that you always look to for strength and for guidance and for that person to be cracking and crumbling under the stress and pressure of whatever it is that is going on in their life. Perhaps it's that moment where you're sitting next to family members at a funeral and you see your dad or your grandfather cry for the first time, the patriarch of the family, the strong man of the family who sits at the head of the table broken, like a little boy crying out in pain. Perhaps you've seen a leader in a workplace who doesn't know what to do or how to react to a certain situation and where you have seen a picture of strength throughout, you begin to see a different image and a different picture. Some commentators like to, to mess with this word where it says he began to be this, but he really wasn't because we all know that Jesus can't quite get there, can't quite feel these things, but I think that that's, it might be a misreading of, of the book of Mark, and Mark definitely wants you to see a different image of Jesus, a man who is broken and distressed and troubled. Remember, when he goes to pray, he just falls on his face. This is not just a normal, I'm going to be very holy and prostrate myself and lay down. This is a, I'm at my wit's end with what's about to happen. Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's tapping into the Psalms here. The Psalms, as we'll see, with beautiful language of lament, pain, agony, petition, prayers that are weighty and passionate and intimate. They're not the prayers that many of us pray as we sit around the table before dinner. They're prayers that mean something more than we usually allow them to mean. 
Jesus tapping into this saying, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, almost as though the situation is so heavy that it might cause me on its own just to die. It's hyperbolic language, sure, but we can see that Jesus is feeling the immense pressure of what is about to happen. And in Jesus' prayer, he says, Abba, Father. We've often heard that Abba means daddy, and this is like a little kid word, but most people would want to move us away from that. Yeah, there's an intimate connection here between father and son, but it's not necessarily the little kid crying out to, to their daddy. There's something a, a bit more, um, there's something different happening here, but Jesus is certainly talking to God the Father in a way that demonstrates the close connection that they have and the close connection that's going to be fractured over the next few hours for the first time in all of time. And Jesus says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. This is a teaching that he gave to his disciples in chapter 10. Everything is possible. Let your prayers and let your petitions reflect that. And now Jesus is taking that and applying it to himself. God, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Heavy with Old Testament language, this cup of suffering, this cup of wrath, this cup of not good things that are about to happen. And Jesus is saying, please take this. Yet not what I will, but what you will. I want you to hold on that for a second because we'll come back to this because I'm convinced that as Christians, a lot of times we look to that last phrase, yet not what I will, but what you will, and we, we maim our prayers because we run very quickly over here without allowing ourselves to petition and to fall on our face and to plead and to pray. But Jesus is here saying, crying out to his Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. One commentator says, when Christians feel weak and fearful at the prospect of imminent death and other suffering, as many of the persecuted Markan community would have probably felt, Remember, the people that were reading this story, they were within a time period of severe and utter persecution, and for them to look back at Jesus in the garden, suffering, pleading, there's something there that they could grab onto and apply in their own life. It says they may be empowered remembering that their Lord also struggled with tribulation, but thereby overcame the world. So whereas some even books of the Bible, and some people would want to move us very quickly beyond the embarrassing picture of Jesus pleading with his dad in the garden to get to this more powerful Jesus, the one that we sing about and worship. What Mark wants us to do is to pause and to stay right here and to see a different picture, a human, broken Jesus. Now, that isn't to, to strip him of his divinity, but it does allow us to see Jesus in a different way. The author of Hebrews 4 says these words, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted or tested in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus understands where you are, where you have been, and where you will be. And we see this image of Jesus in the garden demonstrating that for us. 
This is Walter Brueggemann. You can tell that he's an Old Testament scholar. He's got the nice uh, balding head and beard to accompany it. I'm very much on my way to having the gray as a 34-year-old man, and I'm not ashamed of that. In fact, Kate said the other day, I think you look very distinguished. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's very nice. Walter Brueggemann is this gruff Old Testament professor who's done a lot of work with the Psalms, and one of his articles that has meant a lot to me is called The Costly Loss of Lament, where he talks about the American church and how we are not prone to allowing ourselves moments to grieve. We are not prone to allowing ourselves to pray prayers where we are asking, petitioning, demanding, God to live up to God's promises. We instead have um, cornered the market in smiling, shaking hands, saying, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. Meanwhile, we're masking so much of our own stuff. Now, I can't, I can't recommend to you that when somebody comes up to you and says, how are you? You say, well, I'm terrible. Uh, the dog has been sneezing all over the place and throwing up on the floor, and my kids are going crazy, and anywhere from 12 a.m. to 6 a.m. is a difficult time in the James household, and you just go on with all this very uncomfortable stuff, and the person's just like, like many of you might want to be doing since I just laid that all on you right now. All of those things are true. Um, but... It's difficult for us to break through those social barriers, even with our own close friends, to get to the point of admitting, I'm struggling, I'm hurting. And what Brueggemann is saying, that has cost us something in the American church. In particular, it's cost us powerful, passionate prayers to God that is not just one-sided, not my will but yours be done, but we allow ourselves to stay in the moment of pleading and petitioning before we ultimately commit ourselves to letting God do what God does. N.T. Wright says it is part of normal Christian experience that we too, along with Jesus, should be prepared to agonize in prayer as we await our own complete redemption and that of all creation. Here's my question. When was the last time that you have agonized in prayer for someone else? When was the last time that we have seen the horrible tragedies in the world and actually fall to our knees and pray for God to do something through us, something in those situations, something that can demonstrate his power? When was the last time that we have agonized in prayer, even for our own situations, beyond let me pass the test into allow me to be used by you, allow me to see where you are leading and to go where you're taking me and give me the courage to be able to walk those steps, trusting you along the way. When is the last time that we have allowed the people next to us to be in agony. I know for me, when we see people in grief, a lot of times you just kind of want to, you want to rush them to being okay. You want to rush them to the place where they're not feeling that pain anymore, but we forget the process. We forget how difficult it is, and sometimes in our hurried attempts to move people along by giving them the best book or the best word of advice or the best Facebook meme or whatever you can fill in the blank there, 
we do a disservice to where they are and we try to rush them out of their season of lament and protest and pleading and we forget the image of Jesus as brief as it might be in the garden saying if there's any other way let's do that the only answer that Jesus receives to his prayer in the garden is the hard answer of events that's Cranfield he's an old uh, New Testament scholar but I like this phrase because we see Jesus our exemplar crying out and not receiving the answer that he might want or not receiving the answer um, that we might think is due him but he pleads and he passionately asks God to do the work and God in this passage seems I don't want to say silent but Jesus' prayer is not answered in the way that Jesus thinks it will be and this is emblematic a lot of times of our lives where we pray those big prayers to allow us to get to this job or that job or to mend this relationship or that relationship or to get past the grief that we have over this thing or that thing. But what we find is the hard answer of events or life. And the model that we see is Jesus allowing us to be in a season of lament. But this does not mean that we do not ask. This does not mean that we don't plead. This does not mean that we don't trust. And this does not mean that we don't hope. We do see this picture of Jesus who prays these big prayers. It is not answered in the way that he seems to want. He's obedient. I want to get that square and he knew what he was doing he's been talking about his death and his resurrection for the last four or five chapters he knows where he's going but still in this picture we see a different image and sometimes I think that we're so fed up that we forget that prayer actually does work and it actually is powerful there's a story in the Old Testament in the book of 2nd Kings and it's in chapter 20 it's about Hezekiah. It says, In those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you're going to die. Not a prophecy that you want to hear. Uh, Isaiah was not the, the good guy to have around for dinner parties, but here he's laying it out pretty clearly. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, Lord... Remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. He's broken. He's in the garden in a sense. He's pleading for God to do something different. Isaiah has said what the Lord said, you're going to die. And Hezekiah says, no, no. The text says, and before Isaiah had gone out from the middle of the court, the word of the Lord came to him, turn back. And say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. We do have these pictures in Scripture, and I think it's important to put both side by side, but I know for me, as the cynical doubting type person that I kind of end up with Jesus in the garden where the prayers that don't get answered and it has it has affected my own prayer life where the 
the bigness, the, the gravity of my prayers, they become safe. In a situation that seems bleak, I begin to pray in a way that's not what, you know, not what I want, but what you want. And I don't spend the time in agony pleading and petitioning for God to do something different. And I want to hold these two stories in tension because we see Jesus not getting the answer that he wanted, suffering through the hard uh, circumstances and events of his life. We also see throughout Scripture God engaging in the lives of his people and answering prayers. This story of Jesus in the garden does not mean that we don't ask, and it doesn't mean that we don't trust, and it doesn't mean that we don't hope. I've been kind of like being a bit negative towards the last few words of Jesus' prayer, but I don't want to, I don't want to paint that picture. At the end of the day, not my will, but yours. But do not let those words soften or weaken the petitions that we make on behalf of the people around us and maybe even on behalf of ourselves. The second vignette surrounding Jesus' agony in the garden is one of Judas's betrayal. This whole story is structured by a lot of um, loneliness, I guess you could say. In the beginning, we have Jesus predicting Judas' betrayal. We have Jesus predicting the desertion by the 12, by his closest crew. We have the prediction of Peter denying Jesus. And then after the prayer in the garden, we see how these things come to fulfillment where Judas does in fact betray Jesus, where uh, the disciples do desert Jesus, where Peter does in fact deny Jesus, as we'll see in a bit here. This story about, about Judas is, um, it's a tough one, and Mark doesn't really give us much to go on. It's not a story that's about Judas or his, uh, the stuff that's going on in his mind at the time. Judas is a character to get Jesus ultimately to the cross. But I find Judas's story compelling, and I find... I find it at least worth our time of considering how someone goes from being with Jesus and seeing all these things and being at the table with him to wanting to betray him and to hand him over to death. We see Judas also going about this by kissing Jesus. And that hurts to, to, to see that. At, at this time, that was a normal greeting. This is Judas going up and saying, Rabbi, and kissing him. But the backstory there that we can't in safety imagine is weighty. And as I talked about a few weeks ago, I think for many of us, it might just be that we're one bad experience. We're one hard circumstance. We're one unanswered prayer or prayer that's not answered in the way that we want to becoming this, to being the person who betrays Jesus for our own gain and for our own comfort. Now, within our uh, time in this weird world here, when we think about betrayal, hashtag Kim exposed Taylor, like, we think about betrayal on these sorts of, of, of levels where it's petty, where it's self-centered, where it's um, 
surprising. And I know that for many of us as we sit here, perhaps we haven't been betrayed to the level that Jesus was. Um, but maybe you have. Maybe it's not just the, the, the friend that talks junk about you when nobody's looking. But maybe you've had real issues in your life. Parents that forsake you. Husbands and wives that leave you. The people that you deem to be the closest to you, the safest people in your lives that end up walking away or betraying you. There's two ways that you can think about Judas. You can think about Judas in the sense of, am I the one who's about to betray? But you can also think about how, how Jesus is, is feeling the, the weight of this betrayal in his own life and how we might be able to maybe not sympathize with that, but we can see Jesus as the example who understands what we have been through and wants to see us get to a place of wholeness. The thing about Jesus, though, Judas's betrayal, it didn't come as a surprise. He's been talking about this also for chapters. He knows what's about to happen, and he walks through it, and he suffers that fracture of relationship from his friend, from his partner in ministry, and you can see the weight of Jesus' prayer. Yes, I believe that this is mostly uh, the, the issue between him and, and, and God and the things that he's getting ready to go through, but we see on either side of these stories complete and utter desertion from his friends. In the third little vignette is the disciples' desertion and denial of Jesus. We see in the very beginning of the story, Jesus opens it up by saying, you will all fall away. And then Peter saying very boldly, even if they all fall away, I certainly will not. Even if I have to go to, to die with you, I will die with you. I will never disown you, Jesus. I love you. I'm, I'm with you. I've got your back, Jesus. I'm, whatever it is that you need. In that story, when, when all the, the people come up to him and the one guy slices off the, the dude's ear, a lot of people, John, I believe, says that this is Peter's response to this. Like, he kind of got Jesus' back, and he does it very violently and chops off somebody's ear to demonstrate that. But it's not too long after this announcement where we see in verse 50, everyone deserted him. And Jesus finds himself alone, and Jesus finds himself in the hands of his betrayer and this big group of people that are going to kill him and his closest folks. I got your back, Jesus, even to the point of death, Jesus. I won't go anywhere. I've, I've, I'm here with you. But when Jesus looks around a few minutes later, they're all gone. So think, if you will, for a minute about those last two lines in the story about the young boy in the linen cloth, you want to ask some really important reading questions here. What's a guy doing in the garden with Jesus in a linen cloth that every commentator says, oh yeah, if you, just, if you move quickly, it'll fall off. It's interesting. What's happening here? What's this guy's story? A lot of people have tried to figure out the identity of this young man and they've come up with a whole laundry list of, of different people. The most prominent thought is that this is Mark himself. 
But why the author of his own book would say, yeah, remember that time, guys, when I was like, I was in that linen cloth and I just, I got really freaked out and took it off and I just started running around. Yeah, Jesus, that's when he died. I was naked. I don't know why he would put that in there. What, what seems to be a better reading is, this is the most dramatic picture that we can see of desertion. The most dramatic picture that we can see of the disciples not getting it at all. Saying, I will be with you, Jesus. I have your back. But the very last image that we see of the people that are following Jesus, says this young man who followed Jesus, that same term is used of his closest three in other places in the gospel. The ones that seem to symbolize the, the, the folks that were following Jesus run away naked and ashamed and terrified. If you just heard those words, a lot of people would want to take us back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 where sin and nakedness and shame, and we see that here in the life of this young disciple. This story is difficult for us to, to grapple with, but I think that we see a lot of ourselves in it if we allow, uh, if we allow ourselves to go there. N.T. Wright says, are we like the disciples full of bluster one minute sleep the next, and confused shame the next? Are we ready to betray Jesus if it suits our plans or if he fails to live up to our expectations? A lot of people would think that Judas had this grand scheme that Jesus should live out, but when Jesus demonstrated that he was not going in that route, where he was not gonna carry the sword and end Roman oppression, where he was gonna lay down his life for the lives of others, Judas got super ticked. Or, are we prepared to keep watch with him in the garden, sharing his anguished prayer? And T. Wright concludes his little bit on this passage by saying, the church is called to live in the middle of this great scene, surrounded by confusion, false loyalty, direct attack, and traitor's kisses. Those who name the name of Christ must stay in the garden with him until the Father's will is done. For many of us here, we would claim to be following Jesus. For many of us here, we would claim to be in relationship with Jesus. And I think what we gather from this story is when the stuff hits the fan, who do we demonstrate ourselves to be? Do we take on the characteristics of Jesus where we hit our face and we plead with passion and we plead with intensity on behalf of the others in our lives that need deliverance or healing or what have you? Do we allow ourselves to engage that in our own lives for our marriages, for our family, for our futures, for our callings, for fill in the blank? Or do we, because of hard circumstances, betray Jesus? Or do we, because of fear, run away naked and ashamed? My hope tonight is that for those of you in the midst of life's difficult circumstances, that you do realize that you have a king who understands, who in a sense has been where you are and can sympathize with you and let that impact the prayers that you pray for the church community surrounding 
may we learn to be a community that laments well, that passionately pleads, that petitions God with everything that we have, that we become deeply overcome with grief for the sake of others, for the sake of justice, for the sake of healing, for the sake of reconciliation, for the sake of salvation. May we become a people that fights and advocates for the broken, who aren't always just on the margins. At times, they're right next to us. May we follow Jesus' example of prayer and obedience and passion. And may we be able to say of ourselves, there have been times when I have walked away, there have been times when I have betrayed, there have been times when I denied, there have been times when I was one bad experience away from just completely cashing in the chips. And if that's been you, I beg you, hold on to hope, hold on and begin to trust, hold on and allow yourselves to see a savior who is broken and suffered even to the point of death for you. May we be inspired by him and may we embody his passion and his care and his concern and his sacrifice for the lives of others.